Hello. Welcome to the podcast. My name's Greg. My name's Alicia. And this is Blood, Fear, and Beer. We're going to start with beer. What kind of beer are you drinking tonight? <laughs> well, in celebration of almost the end of spooky season, I'm trying to get as many seasonal beers as I can get my hands on. And I've really been enjoying the Smog City Brewery. So I picked up one from them called the Smogtoberfest, and it is a festival lager. Festival, huh? Festival lager. So let's see how it is, shall we? I've been digging those Smog City. I have too. You know, I feel like for some reason, a lot of the Oktoberfest beers that I've tried are kind of boring. And this one's a little bit boring, but it kind of tastes like a, a nice, boring amber. Can I try it? Yeah. Like, it tastes good, but it doesn't have a whole lot going on. I think that this kind of beer is probably meant to be consumed with very, very flavorful food, and it's meant to be like a refreshing companion. It's fine, right? Yeah. It's just fine. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, there's nothing going on. Yeah. I feel like... It's not bad. It's just kind of tastes like beer-flavored water. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is just meant to be a companion to like a bratwurst or something really flavorful and it just kind of washes it down yeah and then you could say you still drink beer but it doesn't you know affect the flavor of what you're eating yeah that's kind of disappointing <laughs> yeah i beer. feel like most of the Oktoberfest ones that i've tried have been like that yeah, you should stop trying them i think after this one i'm probably gonna you're done yeah put those to rest i think i'm done with those just stick with the pumpkin yeah those have been good what are you drinking? I have in front of me a today's forecast by the Pizza Port Brewing Company, which we've had a few of their brews on the show so far. I know they make an amber that you like. Mm-hmm. So this is, uh, they're out of Carlsbad, California. So I'll give her a go. Yeah. You like it? Yeah, it's nice. Nice. I feel like their beers are, would probably be really good at the brewery. Yeah. Like on like tap. Like on tap. Like these just seem like good old fashioned at the pub kind of beers. That I've had of theirs. The ones I've tried from them so far are exactly what you said. They're nice beers. Yeah. It's really, it's actually like light and refreshing, tasty. It's got that classic pininess of a good IPA. Nice. Can I try it? Nice. I know it has that one hop in it that you don't like. It sure does. Well, I like it. I'm glad you like it. Despite the bitterness that I get from that particular hop, I can tell that it's a good IPA. I wanted it to taste very bitter to me. It's very bitter to me. But it smells really good. It's got a very strong pineapple smell, which I like. Yeah, this seems like a good summer beer, honestly. Yeah. So before we get into our spooky, not scary movie this week, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for bearing with us. And, you know, we're really sorry we couldn't release our Adam's Family episode when we meant to. We will definitely still cover that movie in the future, but... Just the combination of technical issues we were having and life events that came up. I want to make sure that the episodes that we put out are the highest quality possible. And, you know, for that reason, we decided to take a break. And now we're back and we are ready to discuss our spooky, not scary movie. Well put. I also wanted to give a shout out real quick, just because, you know, it's spooky season, we're getting in the mood for Halloween, and as you know, I've been trying to watch as many horror movies as I possibly can, just to get me in the spirit. And I wanted to say thank you to the Married to Horror podcast with the hosts Leslie and Alec for recommending Piewacket on their most recent episode. Yeah, that was a good movie. I loved it so much. I could definitely see myself 
adding that to my rotation of just horror movies that I keep coming back to. You liked it so much that you watched it and then you immediately watched it like the next day with me because yes. you wanted to share it. <laughs> but that's usually what you do. I, I have a low tolerance for shitty horror movies. Yeah. And you don't. Or you're more <laughs> forgiving. Yeah. So the normal MO is that you'll weed through the the sick and dying horror movies that are out there to harvest the gems and bring them home. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Got a venom for you. But that one in particular, I was so excited when it ended, not only because I had found another gem that I'd never heard of before, but I liked it enough to want to watch it again with you immediately. And there's not a ton of movies that I've done that with. Not only that, but it's really hard nowadays for movies to really get under my skin because I watch so many of them. But that one really hit some of my fear buttons to the point where, you know, I watched it by myself during the day, but by myself. And when it ended, I immediately had to put on like a British competition show just to chill out because it fucked me up. Well, also, I know that I'm in for a hell of a movie. When you come to me and say, I just watched something that traumatized me or disturbed me. And I'm like, oh, fuck. What is it? <laughs> what could possibly send you over the edge? Because you are so desensitized. It's a gamble because it's either going to be something just immensely fucked up and disturbing. Or it's just one of the very specific types of things that happens to freak me out maybe more than it would freak you out. So for example, I've noticed that the movies like The Babadook and Hereditary, those movies that combine, even The Witch, I would throw that in there, even though I wasn't terrified by The Witch, it was deeply unsettling and disturbing. But the movies that combine intense family drama with horrific supernatural events scare the shit out of me when they're done well. I've noticed that. It's definitely a good combination. It really is. That really works for me. It does it for me. So thank you guys for recommending that. I absolutely loved it. And if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, it's streaming on Hulu right now. I cannot recommend it enough, especially if you enjoy movies like The Witch and The Babadook. It's a good slow burn and a good Halloween movie. And it pays off at the end. It really does. And If possible, I recommend going in as blindly as possible. So no trailers, try not to read the synopsis, just go into it blind. That's what I did, and I believe that I had a better experience because of it. I try to do that with most of the horror movies. Yeah. Like, if you ever want to watch something, I never look it up. It's really better that way, but there are some movies where I just can't resist looking at the trailers because it's a... A double-edged sword for me. Like, I love going in blind, but I also love horror trailers, and I get super pumped. So I got to balance it out. One of these days, we'll have to do a section on, like, the best horror trailers that we've seen. And the worst. And the worst. (laughs) Or, like, the most misleading or something. But there are some that really stand out as the reason why I keep going back for horror trailers. Nice. (laughs) Midsummer. But, yeah, just wanted to give you guys a shout-out. Thank you for that. And... Of course, as you know, we are covering the classic Tim Burton movie, one of his best in my opinion, Sleepy Hollow from 1999. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the best too. It really is. And it's so funny because as you pointed out to me, we watch this movie at least once a year. And every single time we watch it, one, I forget most of the plot points. Two, I think to myself, this is always so much better than I remember. Why don't I watch it more? And then you point out probably every time that we watch it at least once a year. Yeah. (laughs) And I still forget how good it is. I'm hoping after this time, like watching it for the podcast and really diving into it and watching it with a more critical lens that I won't forget again how good it is. Maybe this time it will sink in like an Iron Maiden. I hope so. So I thought it would be kind of fun since this movie is just the epitome of a classic American gothic folktale. I have a little bit of background information on just the history of American gothic literature and some of the themes that are present throughout all of these books and stories, which of course are also present in Sleepy Hollow. Sounds like a great idea. All right. Do you remember covering this in high school? Did you ever have like a unit on American Gothic literature or folklore or anything like that? I'm sure that I did, but to be honest, I really don't recall it. I'm thinking that it happened during freshman year. Okay. And I hated my... It was not a good year for me. Let's just put it that way. I had family shit going on. I also really didn't like my teacher, I remember. He was just a cranky old little asshole. Yeah. (laughs) I hated freshman year, too. That was just a bad year. I remember I was such a total sidetrack, but he was such a dick. (laughs) Everybody hated him. And he was just this old, crankety asshole. And he was racist. He was sexist. He was just a real piece of shit. And everyone gave him shit constantly. Because of it. And I remember there was something that we had to do. We had to do basically a presentation report on some thing that we liked. I, of course, chose Nine Chanel's. Of course. And I remember specifically that I covered the album Broken and the song Wish because it was the first song ever to win a Grammy with the word fuck in it. And not just the word fuck. <laughs> But the word fist fucked. So I went ahead and brought in my speakers and my CD player and I blasted the whole thing. And I was giving him, it was really funny because I didn't know, right? So I had the speakers in front of me mm-hmm. and I was telling everybody, of course, I love Night Nails and I wanted them to enjoy Night Nails as much as I had it cranked. And I really wanted to bring home the fist fuck at the end. <laughs> and so I was going through and I was doing my spiel about how he had... All this shit that was going on with the record label and how he broke through and how he won this thing and how nobody thought, again, he had broken this boundary of being able to win something with the word fuck in it. And <laughs> it played and everyone was like laughing and having a good time. My teacher was pissed off because it had fist fuck in it. It all worked <laughs> exactly to plan. But the funniest part was that afterwards, like the classmates and everything were like, oh, that was great, blah, blah, blah. And then they go, you know we actually really couldn't hear you because oh, of the music, but no. you were so excited up there that we just, like, everyone was into it. Like, <laughs> you were so passionate about whatever it was you were talking about. You got an A for enthusiasm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's so funny. But that's my recollection of the gothic horror, I guess. <laughs> Off the record, who was your English teacher? You oh, I don't remember. Oh, okay. He was an old white guy. Yeah, for me, I remember covering gothic literature... A couple different times, but my junior year, we spent a whole unit specifically on early American Gothic literature. So, you know, Washington Irving, who wrote 
Sleepy Hollow, the original story, was of course, you know, a prominent focus of that unit. And then typically when you study early American Gothic literature, there's like a trinity. So it's Washington Irving, Edgar Allan Poe, of course, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Those three are usually grouped together when you learn about the early American Gothic literature. So we didn't read Sleepy Hollow, but we read another Washington Irving story called The Devil and Tom Walker, which was really cool. Oh, nice. So I liked that one. But Gothic fiction, the genre, like the larger genre, is basically a genre of literature that combines fiction and horror, death, and romance. All my favorite things. It's great, right? So American Gothic fiction, specifically early American Gothic fiction, like uh, Washington Irving is considered like one of the most important, I'll say pioneers of early American Gothic fiction. So this is a subgenre that almost universally includes themes of rationality versus irrationality, puritanism, guilt, the uncanny ghosts, monsters, and things that are paranormal or not human. Sounds right up your alley. All my favorite things. So I was stoked to cover this when we finally got to cover it. All I need is a purple hue and you're all in. (laughs) Lovecraft is also considered one of his authors, but he has his finger in a lot of genre pies. So (laughs) not so much this one as other ones, but he is mentioned in here. But yeah, that's where you'll find those purple hues that I love so much. Yeah, it was interesting revisiting the themes present in American Gothic literature, because of course, if you watch the movie Sleepy Hollow, it doesn't feel formulaic to me. And... It's definitely not a bad thing. To me, it was a good thing. But it is a perfect example, just blow by blow, of the epitome of an American Gothic tale. It has all of these things. And I think that's what lends credence to this being a very good movie. Yeah. Just the fact that it's able to take all those boxes appropriately, does it well, but also does not feel forced nor formulaic. It just honors that subgenre so perfectly. It's so well done. Some of the other early American Gothic stories were one of the things we've discussed before that I love about horror so much is that contemporary horror, like the horror of whatever time you're in, is such a good tool for reflecting on society's fears and anxiety, like at that moment. And of course, in retrospect, it's fun to look back on what was going on at the time. But The fears that were often reflected in American Gothic literature were things like, because this was during colonial times, mostly in America. So things like frontier wilderness anxiety, fear of nature, the battle between reason and puritanical beliefs, the anxiety around, I would say not just paganism, but nature in general, just the fear and terror around nature and the threat that it posed to people trying to survive during that time. So of course, like I mentioned before, Sleepy Hollow is considered the most famous example of American Gothic fiction. You know, Edgar Allan Poe and Hawthorne, like I said, are often grouped together with Washington Irving. And the three of them really present a very dark, disturbing portrait of the human experience. And 
you see some of that in Sleepy Hollow, but I see, you know, more of the themes of fear and anxiety around paganism, nature, and because women were often associated with nature, fear of women as well, and then condemning of women as witches. So I saw a lot of that in this movie, more so than, you know, a disturbing portrait of human experience, like you would see in Poe's work. Yeah, I would say that there's a lot of shitty people in here. Yeah, for sure. Like, it's there. But I feel like the battle between, you know, reason and superstition is really at the forefront of this movie more than anything else. I mean, there's really a lot to dive into with this one. There was a lot going on. And I found myself when I was watching it just getting really excited because, like I said, every time I watch it, I forget not only how good it is, but how much it has going for it and how much it gives you to think about. Yeah, I do something similar because I I like this movie a lot, but I tend to think back on it or reminisce in a way about one of the things I love the most about it, which is for sure there, and that's just the stylistic aspect of it aesthetically pleasing i love the mood oh it's gorgeous it's just fun to watch and i think that i let that kind of overpower the fact that it is legitimately a good movie that it flows well and it deals with interesting concepts and like you said this battle between reason and superstition and the fears of the unknown and of nature versus this rule of society and the law of men. I feel like that's exactly the trap that I fall into when I'm trying to remember this movie is I'm so enamored by the look of it and the feel of it that when I think about this movie, I think about that pumpkin scarecrow and the image of the headless horseman and the beautiful color palette and the redness of the blood. And I forget like, oh, it's actually also a really well told story and a good mystery. And it is almost perfectly paced. Yeah, I feel like it's almost I want to say it's almost perfect. I do too. For what it is. It's almost perfect. I want to say it's a damn near perfect movie. Yeah. I I can't find a lot to fault on this. Yeah, I have very few And I think most of my qualms are probably just just a bitch about something. (laughs) I have one that I feel is legitimate, but it's also not big enough to diminish how much I love this movie. What is it? We'll get there. I'm saving it. You're saving it? I'm saving it. Because it's not so close to the end. Is it that she was a witch? No. Okay. I thought that was cool. I love when there's witches. I'm always excited when you find out there are witches. Well, are you ready to talk about this almost perfect movie? Indeed. All right. So if you had to give just a quick synopsis of the plot or what this movie is about, what would you give us? The year is 1799. We have a young detective-like person who solves (laughs) crimes and wants to do it in a way that is not based on superstition and use science and reason which is completely unheard of in this day and age and considered utter blasphemy. But they're going to give him a chance. And there has been a slew of beheadings in a small town named Sleepy Hollow, just north of where he's now residing, where he will be put to the test with his scientific endeavor to solve the crimes of Sleepy Hollow. That was impressive. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad pulling out of my ass? (laughs) Not bad at all. And this young detective-type person, I believe he's a police constable or something. I don't know if they call him back then. Constable. That's right. Ichabod Crane is played by none other than Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Who was so good in this movie. This was back in, like, the glory days of Johnny Depp. 
before yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I really think that's, to me... That's the turning point. I feel like that was the turning point. Yeah. That was the point where this almost universal thing happened where people were just sick of seeing Johnny Depp. Well, I will not say that because they made five of those things and they were all blockbuster <laughs> major, major movies. <laughs> so, But I feel like now there's a little bit of now Johnny Depp fatigue. There is. You know? But I won't say that was where people were sick of him. But I think that is where there is a divide between there's the OG Johnny Depp people mm-hmm. and then there was the, the mom generation that just found him irresistibly hot Yeah, as a buccaneer. <laughs> like my mom. Yeah, my mom and my sister. <laughs> yeah, I've always been pretty neutral on Johnny Depp, but I really enjoyed his performance in this movie, and I really, I feel like there was a lot of good physical comedy in this, mostly with his mannerisms and his facial expressions. He's one of those dudes that at this point has been so overcasted that it's easy to just kind of caricature him. Yeah. And he plays a very particular type of role each time. Yeah. But he, there's a reason why he's been placed in those roles every time. And there's a reason why those movies work every single time. Yeah. With some exceptions. But even then, I don't really feel like he's playing a normal Johnny Depp character in Willy Wonka. Oh, but gosh, that yeah. being said, <laughs> he's really good at those kind of faceful and body gesture type of things. And being able to do it both comedically and in a sense of like seriousness at the same time. Like believable. Yeah. Comical, but believable. Yeah, he was very believable. I feel like just about all of the performances in this movie were very genuine and believable, with maybe one or two exceptions. Yeah, and I will also say, in some scenes, each one of these characters is kind of a caricature of a certain type of person. Yeah. And they're each in their own right, way over the top. Yeah. And I'm impressed with how well they were able to balance this as a whole in the movie, but also each individual character and actor was able to balance that line between being funny and having a little bit of camp to their character and yeah. their scenes, but not make it campy. Yes, they exactly. Just, they could make you laugh while still portraying this as a dramatic story. Yeah, that's so well said. I mean, it was very, very well balanced in that regard. And, and there were some scenes that were genuinely disturbing yeah. as well. So right off the bat, you know, we were talking about the atmosphere and the look of this movie. I feel like just the the first 10 minutes of this movie where you have the intro where you find out who Ichabod Crane is and what he's about in a very short span of time. It's done very effectively. And he's sent to this small town and just his journey. And who is he sent by? He's sent by none other than Christopher Lee. Fuck yeah. (laughs) The one and only Christopher Lee. I forgot he was in this. I was so excited. I did too. I was so happy to see him. There's a lot of awesome actors in this. But just watching that journey from big city New York to this superstitious little town and he's riding in this carriage and there's this mist that just hangs over the land and autumn leaves crunching under the wheels and that amazing Danny Elfman score. I never really paid a lot of attention to the score before now, but that has to be one of the better Danny Elfman scores that I've heard and it's like stuck in my head for the last few days. I gotta say, I love just about everything Danny Elfman does. I do too, but this one in particular... That was the first dude that ever got me into soundtracks. Yeah, I think for me too. Probably with Nightmare Before Christmas and or Beetlejuice. I mean, he's really good at just making 
an iconic movie specific score that really sticks in your head and it's big yeah all of his is stuff big. is always so big and yeah. just robust yeah it's robust <laughs> and powerful and you just feel like when you're doing you know riding along a horse carriage and they're going along like you feel the whole force of the, like that horsepower yeah but then with the element of the unknown and the spooky and this supernatural. Yeah, 100%. And then that combination of the lighting and the score and the scenery is so effective at not only just getting me in the mood for Halloween and spooky season in general, but completely immersing me in this world. Absolutely. And then when they pull up to that village, I wrote a note that that village looks so good. Oh, great. It's so good. Every single shot in this is so detailed. That's the thing. I I was looking into some of this, you know, as far as making the sets and all that. Oh, it's okay. I was okay. I I was hard pressed to. I would have been surprised had that not been a completely fabricated set because it was so well made. Yeah, it, it looked worked. like it was for this movie. It Did was. they build it? So they no? built that. The entire town was built from scratch, and they built it somewhere in England, a small area in England that was oh, had okay. fit all that characteristics and everything. But every single house, that whole town was built from scratch, and it was all built with just insanely painstaking detail. And then on top of that, you have the actual woods that they go out into. And there's a name for it. I can't remember what it is right now, but it's like the Western Woods or something like that. Mm -hmm. But basically all the forest scenes and everything you see is built on the largest soundstage in the world. So all the trees, the entire forest. That was a set? A sound, is a set. Are you shitting me? No. Oh they my decided God. that they didn't want to have to deal with weather and just different variations and lighting and sound and weather conditions and they decided to build the whole fucking thing oh my god that's amazing it's it amazing. looks so good i know it looks like a forest damn i would have never suspected that those scenes weren't filmed outside in i know the forest yeah isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's super crazy. I'm impressed. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the everything about this movie has just insane amounts of detail. The beheadings, you oh, know, man. each so one of the heads good. they spent, you know, the actors that got beheaded had to spend just hours getting the whatever you call it, the mold of the face. And then they did like silicone and hair and contact lenses. They did complete dental work of the actual actor so they had to make molds of the teeth and get those fabricated and then every single hair was placed into the bot into the fake head one by one and so it's all real hair no way and it's just insane detail for each and every single one of these things and it, it pays off it really does wow because you would think a bunch of beheading scenes would be really cheesy yeah and they're fun and they're campy yeah you know but they're also Really well done. The special effects are great. Yeah, they're super compelling. And every single time the horseman shows up, because, you know, as soon as Ichabod Crane arrives in Sleepy Hollow, he's met with the villagers at the, I think it's at the Van Tassel house, right? Where we have Baltus Van Tassel and his daughter Katrina. Yeah. And they meet for the first time and she's playing... I think it's like a blind man's bluff type game. And she's saying a rhyme about the pickety witch, as she calls it. And immediately he's met with this kind of culture shock, I guess you could call it, where everyone in this town believes in this legend of the Headless Horseman. And they know without any shadow of a doubt that that's who 
is committing these murders. And the force of that when Ichabod arrives is enough to make his head spin. No pun intended. But I loved that first initial scene where he goes into the house and he meets Katrina. And the chemistry between the two of them is just incredible, off the charts. And then he goes into, I guess, the little library room or study. And you have all of... It's like the... Gentlemen's quarters. Yeah, the gentlemen's quarters. And they kick out, you know, Lady Van Tassel and get down to business. But they're basically trying to prepare Ichabod Crane for what they know he's about to witness. And they're like feeding him this legend. They hand him a Bible and say, this is the only book that you're going to need. This is the only tool you're going to need. And we have like the, I think it's the magistrate, the notary, Baltus Van Tassel is in there. You have all these men just trying to almost like arm Ichabod with superstition. And these are all the elders. These are basically the people that are running and in charge of the town. Yes. Like, these are the most authoritarian people in the entire town as a collective, and there is not a single shred of doubt by a single one of them. And I really, really loved Ichabod's character because he he's very strong in his convictions and his way of doing things, but he isn't afraid to tell people when he thinks they're wrong, but I never felt like he was condescending or felt like he was superior to other people. It's also here that we get the actual backstory of who this horseman is. Right? Yeah. So he's supposed to be this Hessian, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hessian German, which are essentially just the Germans that came over and fought with the British during the Revolutionary War. Yeah. So they were our enemies, if you're an American. But the story is that he was just basically here as a complete barbaric warrior who had absolutely no allegiance to any man or country and was just here for the sheer sake of battle. Yeah. And in particularly, he was known for his ferocity, his brutality, and his beheadings. And he was known for heading straight forward into battle and beheading anybody and everybody that came into his path, including the British. He was feared among the troops. At one point, he is basically lost and he's been shot his horse has been shot and it's the dead of winter and so he's off on his own he's trying to get away or at least his horse has been wounded i'm not sure if he has or not and he's trying to get away and i think it's actually the british that are after him even though he's supposed to be there fighting with the british but right at this he's point out of control he's completely out of control and he's trying to get away and he runs into these two little girls in the woods by the way the Haitian German is none other than Christopher Walken for some reason. Yeah. Every time I see him in this movie in particular as the horseman, the first thought that pops into my head is why? Yeah. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. But yeah, but, my first thought is why, why. And then my second thought is, ah, why not? Yeah, it works. It's fine. I enjoy how he plays that character. Yeah, anyway, he's supposed yeah. to be kind of a crazy dude, and he pulls yeah. it off pretty well. He doesn't talk either. He just goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you were talking about the toy snapping little Yeah, he runs through these two cute little blonde <laughs> girls that are collecting firewood, and all he does is go, shh. And the one little girl just grabs the stick, <laughs> breaks it in half. <laughs> and causes him to and get killed. And causes him to get killed and beheaded. <laughs> and so they behead him, bury him in the frozen ground, somehow dig a really nice, decent grave for him. <laughs> I don't know why they just leave him to fucking die on the ground. Right, yeah. But anyway, they buried Superstition. him. Superstition. It must have been, right? Yeah. 
I think it was. Probably. Everyone was, like, terrified of the dude, and they just wanted to make sure he was dead and gone. Yeah, like, properly put to rest. Properly put to rest. Yeah. And so they throw him in there, beheaded, and they say that that day, evil was planted. The seed of evil. And that from that day on, his headless corpse will rise from his grave and do these beheadings. But yeah. they don't know why. And that's the legend that the entire town is expertly versed in. Everybody knows it. And everybody believes it. So I really liked that. I really enjoyed that they get straight into the the lore behind the horseman and his backstory. And it's presented as fact to Ichabod Crane. Like, there's no doubt whatsoever that this is anything other than this ghost. Really cool. Or whatever yeah. it is. Or whatever, I don't know if yeah. they necessarily think it's a ghost, but yeah. this supernatural entity. Yeah. I also thought that even when you know the story and know who's controlling the horseman and why, uh, it's so interesting to watch the scenes where he actually comes to the town and commits these murders because he doesn't kill just anybody. He has very, very specific targets and he almost doesn't seem to even notice other people unless they get in his way. And even then, he won't go out of his way to try and kill anybody that isn't on his target list, essentially. No, you, like, straight up have to throw an axe in his back before yeah. you get attention. And even then, he'll just kind of incapacitate you. He won't kill you. Yeah. But, you know, the first time Ichabod sees him, he completely ignores him. It's like he doesn't even register that he's there or care. He's no. on a mission. He has a task. And that's all he's there for. So it's very deliberate. And it's it's really interesting both, you know, not knowing the story and then rewarding when you do know the story. Even so, it's very perplexing, especially yeah. as a first watch, as adding to that mystery of, okay, there's a headless horseman. And that's kind of where Ichabod is, too. When he sees it, he's completely flabbergasted. And he's, like, going to the, all the, the elders and the leaders of this community. He's like, no, you don't understand. I saw a headless horseman. <laughs> and they're like... Yeah, that's what we fucking told yeah, you. We know. <laughs> and that's so what we're trying to he's tell really you. <laughs> taken aback, and he, it basically puts him into shock. He doesn't know what to do because again, he's came here to solve a murder committed by a human. Yeah, and that's what he believes was happening. And then uh, what I was getting at was it adds to the mystery for Ichabod and for the audience as to what his motivations are. Because again, Ichabod is going about this trying to use the unheard of approach of the scientific method in which there must be some kind of motive and reasoning behind this murderer's goals. Yeah. And it's so interesting because you almost have three, I guess you could say ideologies or viewpoints that are clashing here. So you have very specific like puritanical Christianity, Ichabod's logic and reason, and then like elements of paganism and spiritualism and none of them are completely wrong which is really interesting they're all right to some degree yeah and the it required all three to solve the mystery yeah i thought that was really cool because then you have movies like the wicker man comes to mind of you know having two ideologies on two extreme ends of the spectrum and when you watch that movie it's like well you're both wrong and Neither of you is going to see the other person's point of view. But in this movie, they are all right to some degree. And that's really interesting. One thing I also liked about this, speaking of like these three opposing viewpoints, if you will, is the fact that at no point in the movie is there ever a, a clarification of 
why one thing happened or why that worked and, you know, within the realm of scientific reason or something. But at the same time, nobody from any of those parties really argues with it. Yeah, it's I thought very that was really interesting is because they you just have accept Ichabod. It. Yeah, yeah, accept the unknown and accept that you went as far as you could. Everyone achieved the goal that they were trying to do, which was, well, not obviously not the, the person who was controlling the Headless Horseman, but the people in the community that were trying to protect themselves and Ichabod that was trying to solve this. The mystery is solved. The killer is stopped and thwarted. And some of the other elements of the corruption of the town has been also brought been brought to light and thwarted. So a lot of wrongs are righted by the end of this. But at the same time, you're dealing with the fact that Ichabod had to deal with the supernatural. The townspeople had to deal with using scientific reasoning to solve a supernatural mystery and to stop it. And it required paganism to aid in joining those two opposing viewpoints. Yeah, 100%. Very well said. So what were some of your favorite scenes in this, if you had to pick a couple? And those could be scenes that really hammer these themes home or just looked really cool or were just entertaining. Well, straight out of the bat, I just love the whole fucking movie. Yeah. As, as it's set and pick. setting goes, yeah. I love watching this. It's a complete delight and really joy. It is, yeah. It really puts you in, in the moon. You feel like you're in that town. So whole set and setting I loved. I will say particular scenes that I thought were pretty great. I liked the scene when Ichabod examines the first body in the woods. Yes. There's a lot of good physical comedy in that. Yeah. And he did... That was one of, one of my favorite scenes of him. And he... <laughs> you must never move the body. <laughs> Why? Because... He doesn't know because because I think that's important. Yeah. And he's wearing all this like steampunk goth shit on his face, like yeah, you know, little, magnifying glasses and his little little gadgets device. and gadgets. Yeah. yeah, he brings out this bag and his little chemistry set and everything. <laughs> and it's kind of again playing with that idea of what this looks pagan. It does. You know, to a Puritan, it doesn't matter if you're drawing these witch symbols and cutting off a crow's foot and throwing it into a pot with some, you know, eye of a newt or whatever. Or if you're busting out your little chemistry kit and throwing this thing on there yeah. and having it sizzle, like it all looks the same to them. So I thought that was a really neat, fun scene. It was. I also, I, I have to say that the scene where they find the grave of the Headless Horseman. Oh, yeah. That you get the, that twisted tree. So cool. And when they go and they start picking at it, like, the tree just spurts blood. Oh. And Ichabod gets blood in his face constantly in this movie. Like, yeah. every single time he cuts something, it just goes right in his face. And it's such... I, I know you commented on the blood specifically and how much you liked it, but it is just, like, this bright red viscous color and it, it's actually the exact same color and consistency of the wax seal that just they about. show at the intro just, just about. about yeah it's very exaggerated very bright very garish but it works i loved it yeah. and normally that doesn't work for most movies yeah but it was absolutely a perfect fit for this it was speaking of the blood when i one of the first it's just there's so many beautiful shots in this movie. Yeah. But there's the beginning when they're taking that carriage ride and you don't know who this dude is, but you can tell he's wealthy 
and he's trying to escape. Like you can tell, he's kind of got that fear of God in him. Oh, the old he, man at the, the very old beginning. Man in yeah. the very beginning. And this is the first beheading that we see. Actually, second, I should say, because we see the carriage driver get his head cut off. And so the carriage goes askew, and he's running through this cornfield, and there is a scarecrow with just like a great Halloween jack o' lantern head on it. So cool. And this guy gets beheaded, and it's like this flash of lightning and this slash spray of blood across this pumpkin jack o' lantern smile. Yeah. And it was just a lovely scene. It really was. I never got tired of that. Like every single time the horseman showed up and you have the flashing lights and Mm -hmm. the sound of the hoofs galloping and then just I I love a good sword strike on a moving Mm -hmm. horse. It's just so satisfying every time. Oh yeah. So good. I never got tired of it. I also loved the scene where Ichabod and I think it was Brom, the one who Katrina was supposed to be engaged to come into contact with the horseman and, you know, there's that scene that you really liked where he was initially at the other end of the bridge and then he's gone and you just see the empty bridge and hear the footsteps. You can still hear him coming yeah, at Yeah, you don't them. know where he is. And then it turns out he's up on the roof of the bridge and then he does this amazing, like, stab and throw with Ichabod yeah. where he stabs him <laughs> in like the shoulder and just burger. tosses him over yeah. the back of it <laughs> to get to his target. But it I was do... so satisfying. Yeah, I just... Since we're on that scene, I read that Brom in that scene, he's got two axes that uh-huh. he's, or like pickaxes that he's fighting with. Yeah. And so because of that, he didn't have much control, or at least that's to be claimed. And during that scene, the axe or something, like I think of the, the wood handle part of it, obviously, yeah. came down and broke his finger. Oh, no. And it immediately turned black. But he was afraid of his scenes getting cut short and he already has kind of a small role in this so he just went in the back he went to his like little stage coach or whatever and just bandaged up his own finger and splinted it and went out and finished that scene before going to the hospital so oh, he could no still way. be in the movie that's dedication yeah right seriously there. wow i also have to say i think the church scene was probably my favorite individual scene oh yeah that was good that was so so good so many things about it were so good because it's The first point where we get everybody in the town together, and this is really where the fear starts kicking in. So, you know, although a lot of the villagers and the people trying to figure out what's going on here eventually accept what's happening and accept different reasoning for things and different viewpoints, this is the point where their fear really gets the better of them. They start fighting amongst themselves and just panicking, and their beliefs are challenged, essentially. And... Even Ichabod kind of falls prey to this. So they all are running into the church. The horseman is showing up. We don't know who his target is, but we are led to believe that he's just killed Lady Van Tassel. Wife. Baltus's wife and Katrina's stepmother. So they all run into the church and they're panicking and then they're trying to barricade the doors and arm themselves, basically. And then Ichabod is the one to say he can't enter because the horseman is kind of patrolling the perimeter trying to find a way in and the impression they get is oh he can't touch us because we're on hallowed ground so at this point Ichabod is kind of buying into this superstition and then the villagers are still panicking uh one of the guys I think it was I don't remember his name but it was the actor in Beetlejuice and for yeah Ferris Bueller's yeah that's yeah. why I love takes this. a massive crucifix and hits a guy on the head and beats him to death with it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a super metal scene. I love that. It was that. so when you good. Have 
The Reverend beat Amanda death with the cross. With a massive crucifix. And then Katrina, at this point, we know that she's got a little bit of witch in her. And Ichabod is, I believe, suspicious of her father. Yes. At this point. And she's angry with him. Yeah, he's written as much. He's started to look into this whole situation. And again, he was at first completely traumatized by the fact that he saw a headless horseman and he can't make any sense of it. And he was ready to give up because it just did not compute. Yeah. And then he came back anew, had that second win, and was like, I don't understand this, but I understand that whatever's going on here, this thing was being controlled. Yeah. And it was being controlled by a human. Yeah. And we can stop a human. Yeah. And so he's, like, completely okay with that, essentially. He's, And that's another thing like we've talked about already that I really liked about it was the fact that I don't understand what the fuck's going on here, mm-hmm. but I do understand that it can be stopped and we have the power to stop it. Yeah. And it being at least controlled by things that are natural, by humans. And so he starts digging into this thing and he finds that parallel to all this, we're starting to see that it's a small town and there's been some fishy ongoings. And the fact that all these people have been targeted, Ichabod's like, this isn't fucking random. There's something going on. We yeah. just need to connect the dots. Yeah. Then he starts looking into like family tree stuff and inheritances. And first victims were of the Van Garrett family. And they have this massive fortune. So he basically traces it down the line. And it would appear that if Baltus Van Tassel is the one controlling the horsemen, he is picking off the people or having the people killed who would be next in line to inherit this fortune. And or people that would have been able to delegitimize this fortune. Yeah. So understandably, he starts to suspect Baltus, Katrina's father, and she is very upset by this. And they have kind of been courting and kind of falling for each other. And, you know, side note, that was another thing. I really liked their relationship in this movie. It felt very natural and very believable. And I thought they were adorable together. I'll come back to that. But... Katrina feels incredibly betrayed by this, and she's very close with her father. And all this culminates in that church scene where he suspects Baltus, and Katrina's upset. And he also kind of suspects Katrina of performing witchcraft and trying to stop him. And that's because she actually does try to stop him. So he's not really wrong about most of this. But then that all comes crumbling down when they're in the church, they think they're safe. And then the horseman picks up part of the picket fence, ties a lasso around it, throws it through the window and impales Baltus and just yanks him out the window to chop off his head. Yeah, he makes a harpoon. (laughs) Just harpoons him and yanks him through the window so fast and so hard and drags him away to cut off his head. That was so good. So we know, okay, it can't be Baltus or if it was, that was botched. Right. And then I loved that shot where it's like panning through the aftermath of this chaos and Katrina is on her back because she's fainted. There's blood everywhere and then it pans to this super witchy looking symbol that she's drawn on the ground, which we find out later is a protection spell. Just a really, really cool scene. Well, we don't find that out until a little bit later because at this point, Ichabod is now packing it up to go home. Yeah. He's on the carriage on the way back to New York because he completely feels like he's failed and is perplexed by this whole situation. He also feels betrayed by Katrina and is kind of just 
giving up. Yeah. And it's right, I mean, he didn't get very far, luckily, he didn't even cross the bridge out of town, but it's at this point that he looks at this book that Katrina had given him of witchcraft spells and things of that nature. Yeah. And that's when he sees that the symbols that were underneath his bed and the symbols that were inside of the church were not some evil symbols that he associated yeah. with superstition, but protection. He turns around and is like, I got this all wrong. Yeah. And I love that. Like, I have to just add a note real quick. I feel like this movie also made some really interesting commentary on gender and gender roles and gender expectations. I briefly mentioned earlier how women were often associated with being closer to nature and being associated with paganism, being accused of witchcraft. And this type of puritanical Christianity in particular was very misogynistic. And we see that very prominently when we find out what happened to Ichabod's mother. He refers to her as a child of nature. We see these flashbacks where she is lovingly dancing with him outside. They're surrounded by flowers. She's showing him little optical illusions and magic tricks. And she's portrayed as just being very pure and close to nature. And then the father storms in and takes her into this stark white room with a blood red door and then throws her on the ground and points to a Bible verse. And I looked up which Bible verse it was, and it's Exodus twenty two eighteen: thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And then he murders her by shoving her in an Iron Maiden. And Ichabod's character was so interesting because I feel like they gave him traits that would be traditionally generalized as feminine or could be characterized as feminine. So for example, he was very squeamish in a lot of ways. Like, you know, he fainted several times. He cringed when he saw bugs. He got grossed out by the blood. He was afraid to a reasonable degree. Like, I feel like it wasn't done in a way where it was like a caricature of feminine traits. Like it was funny at certain moments just because of the way that Johnny Depp played this character. But I thought it was really interesting. And like just to not have this hyper-masculine protagonist slash hero. It was very interesting. And I also really liked the scene where Katrina shows up in the woods to help him. And he doesn't tell her to go back. He doesn't try to be the hero and protect her. He's extremely gracious and he, he thanks her. And he says, I'm twice the man now. And he accepts her help. And then later on, when he realizes he was wrong about his predictions or his assumptions, he goes back and immediately apologizes and asks for forgiveness. I thought it was very interesting and very well done. Yeah, an, inter an interesting take on you know, gender stereotypes and gender roles. Yeah, and I mean, Ichabod just kind of has that character in the original story, too. Not yeah. necessarily as much with the in, dealing with Katrina, but just his actual nature and his... He's an outcast, he's scrawny, he's not built, he's not manly, he's yeah. nerdy, he's very untraditionally a man. Yeah, I feel like during that time period in particular... Other people would have characterized him as a dandy. Or a snowflake nowadays. Snowflake nowadays, for sure. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed what they did with his character. I thought it was very intriguing and very well done. And like I said, it was really cool to see a male hero who wasn't characterized as hyper-masculine. In fact, I don't really feel almost none of the characters were hyper-masculine. Yeah. Even the most masculine dude, which was Brom, he really wasn't that over the top. You know, he was no. kind of a... A little bit of a tool. Yeah. In some degrees. But he was but also he kind. He was kind. Yeah. And he wasn't, for the most part, I mean, he like 
was fucking around with him, you know, yeah. but he was in good spirits. But when it comes down to it... He was a kind yeah. dude. He was there trying to do the right thing. And even his hints of jealousy, they weren't portrayed in a caricature-like way. It was yeah. just that he was kind of insecure as a man, which yeah. happens. Yeah, and the, the reason why he was messing with Ichabod was because he's supposed to be engaged to Katrina, and Ichabod has taken a very obvious liking to her, and she seems to be reciprocating. So, of course, he's... Yeah, it's legitimate, by that. You know. Yeah, yeah, and then he's killed off. Ichabod doesn't have to worry about him anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was very well done. I really loved Katrina's character as well. This is definitely one of my favorite Christina Ritchie roles, which is not saying much because I love her in everything, but I really liked her in this role. And they dyed her eyebrows. They dyed her eyebrows. They actually remember to dye the eyebrows. I loved the blonde hair on her. It looked great. I yeah. was just so glad they dyed the eyebrows. Yeah. That they... I don't know how it is that it always slips past everybody in the whole fucking set. And when they, they dye somebody's hair, they don't dye the eyebrows usually. They remember. You know, getting closer to the end, we, of course, find out who is really controlling the horsemen, and that is Lady Van Tassel. There's a lot of van names in this, so I get kind of confused, but it's Lady Van Tassel, right? Baltus's yes. wife and Katrina's stepmother. So she has been the one controlling the horsemen this entire time. And we also find out that she was the little twig snapper in the flashback. And her sister, the other girl that was with her, was the witch that Ichabod goes to see in the woods earlier in the movie. So this is really the only complaint I have about this movie is, you know, I know that we had to put in the explanation somewhere, but we get the classic overlong villain monologue where she explains everything that she did and why she did it and her whole backstory and isn't it marvelous how evil I am and I, I thought that was just a little bit silly but also I understand why it was needed for the story to move the story forward and kind of round things off. So we basically find out that the Van Garrett family, I think it's the Van Garrett family, I might be mixing these up, basically caused her family to go into financial ruin when she was a kid. And then Baltus took over. It was either the Van Tassels that she married into or the Van Garretts that basically forced her out of her home. Well, the Van Garretts are the ones that were basically the property owners. Right. And forced them out of their home because they couldn't pay rent. And it caused them to become destitute and basically have to live in the woods. Yeah. So this is like a... Like, she's in it for the long game for revenge. So her end goal is to, one, get revenge on this family line for causing the financial ruin of her family. And she also wants to get a hold of the Van Garrett fortune. Right. So she is controlling the horseman. And the way she's controlling him is by using his skull. She has possession of his skull. And the reason why she knows about all this is because she was the little girl that was ultimately the cause of his demise. Exactly. So that's the only part I didn't love. I honestly wasn't crazy about her character in general. Like she pops in with these one-liners like, oh, you're just in time to get your head cut off. And like her line delivery felt a little jilted to me. But like I said, it wasn't enough to really diminish the movie for me, but it did kind of grate on me a little bit, especially considering that the other performances felt so natural and so strong. That's a really good point. I have the I wasn't really thinking about that because I was kind of so enamored with everything else. Yeah. And that whole scene is pretty small in comparison. It's a very small percentage of the movie compared to all the excellent scenes that we've seen so far. Yeah. But her character is kind of annoying. Yeah, and just over the top in a way that didn't really fit with the other over the top scenes and characters. And this is 
goes back to what I was saying where a lot of these actors had done such a good job of towing the line between camp yeah. and believable. And she's like full camp. And she's full camp. Yeah. I, like she missed the memo that day. Yeah. It bothered me a little bit. Not the great point. But that being said, I loved the end scene where there's the face off in the woods and Ichabod finally gets ahead of the skull, a hold of the skull and gives it back to the horseman. And I mean, for 1999 CGI effects, the regenerating of his face looked really cool, in my opinion. Just like the muscle and the blood and the bone knitting itself back together and regenerating. And then when he pulls her up on the horse and just like kisses her with his sharp teeth and there's blood well, he everywhere. Kiss her, he, bites he like her. bites her and there's blood everywhere. And then he grabs her close to him, jumps into the tree, and we are to believe drags her down to hell with him. Yes. Loved it. Metal. Loved it. So cool. Speaking of the actual because there's a lot of good prosthetics in this, but even the CGI holds up. Like you were saying. It looks Which really good. The, in particular, what I was going to get at is the horseman jumping out of the tree. Yeah, that looks that awesome. That is so fucking good. It really is. It, it's really well done. And the fact that it was done, you know, over 20 years ago now, and we're watching that and saying that it was well done, goes to show you how much detail was put into these things and how yeah. careful and meticulous they were about it. I loved the heads in the tree. Oh, yes. Where he's like stashing all the heads. That, mm -hmm. that was an image that stuck with me is just... A highlight shot of this movie is all the bloody heads in this bloody tree of death, which also doubles as a portal to hell. Right. So cool. Loved it. <laughs> well, I absolutely loved this movie. It was a delight to watch. And you know, now that we're getting to the ratings portion, I really can't think of anything wrong with this movie at all. Like on a technical level, story-wise, pacing, atmosphere, mood, performances, like like I said, this is an almost perfect movie. So we rate on a scale of 0 to 12 beers. And since this movie was your pick, I'll let you do the rating first. What are you going to give Sleepy Hollow? I have to agree. I can't find a whole lot of fault with this. You actually just brought up a very good point. I'd say the biggest fault is that performance with Lady Von Tossel. Yeah. And there's a scene at the windmill where all that took place, really. I'm not exactly wild about that scene either. Felt a little thrown in there? Yeah. Yeah. It felt a little rushed. It felt like... It almost reminded me of when you're watching a series on TV and you've had, like, the same director for three episodes and then they, like, let someone else direct. And you can tell. And you can fucking tell. Yeah. Like, I almost <laughs> feel like... I don't know, Tim Burton was Took either off, off his game that day or something. <laughs> yeah. So that is really the only critique I can give this movie. And that being said... I'm going to go ahead and give this a pretty damn good rating. I'm, I can't see any reason to go below 11.5. Nice. Damn, I, I, it's, 11, yeah. It's a good movie. I can't, I can't find, I mean, the soundtrack's good, the soundscape's good, the acting good, the story's good, the setting's amazing. It holds up. I mean, again, we've probably watched this every single year for 20 fucking years. I still like this movie this much. Yeah, me too. The, and it feels fresh every time. The prosthetics are great. It has a great portray on you know gender roles that has good substance when it comes to just dealing with interesting themes it's good it's a good yeah. movie so for my score i had 11 out of 12 written down but you know now that we've talked about it i don't know that 
Lady Van Tassel's performance and her, you know, couple lines that she had was enough to knock down a whole beer. So I think I'm going to have to agree with you and give it 11 and a half out of 12. Yeah, I don't think it's enough to knock it down. I don't think it's a full beer. It was such a small percentage. Yeah. And it really didn't take away from it that much for me. So I think 11 and a half is a great score. Damn. 11 and a half if you're feeling generous, 11 if you're not. Still a great fucking movie either way. It really is. I, I really, really loved it. This was a good pick. Thank you. That was fun. I had a good time. Me too. I always do. Great, great finish to Halloween <laughs> season too. Definitely. That being said, what kind of beer pairs with this? Well, for this one, I felt like it had to be some kind of Halloween themed beer, preferably a pumpkin beer. And the Shipyard Brewing Company makes some fantastic pumpkin beers. And I think I tried this one on the podcast not too long ago, but I think Sleepy Hollow would pair perfectly with the shipyard smashed pumpkin ale nice absolutely delicious not just because ichabod gets the pumpkin smashed in his face but i feel like it would be a perfect companion drink for this movie i agree it's got obviously there's a lot of pumpkins in this so mm-hmm. and it's a halloweenish movie so it's got the pumpkin aspect yeah it's also dark and if i remember that one was a banger on the alcohol content yeah so i think it was like a nine it comes at you unexpectedly <laughs> yeah So this was your pick for our spooky, not scary movie, just in time for the Halloween season. And, you know, as we mentioned, we were unfortunately unable to release our Adam's Family episode. So this will, this one will come out two weeks after our Saw episode. And initially when we started this podcast, we initially intended this to be a podcast where we review a movie every other week or every two weeks. And because of the quarantine, because of the pandemic situation, we had more time at home. We had the time to put together an episode every week and have it be the quality that we wanted from our episodes. But you know, now that our schedules are getting a little bit busier, things are starting to pick up again. I just started a new job. We are going to be going back to our original intended format where we cover a movie every two weeks. But I think that that will give us a chance to do the research we want to do and put out the highest quality episodes that we can. Well, like you said, this was my pick. What are we watching and reviewing two weeks from now? Two weeks from now, we will be covering a movie that I am obsessed with and I've been wanting to cover for a while, and I think it's time. So for our next episode, we will be covering the one and only Mandy. I knew it. We're finally doing it. We're doing it. We are watching. You ready? I think I'm ready. You're going to bring it justice? I hope so. You've been talking this movie up. I know. I hope I do it justice. All right. If you have not seen this movie, for the love of God, please go watch it. You're in for a treat. It's on Shutter. You can rent it. Watch Mandy. That's a movie where I would recommend watching the trailer to see if it's something you'd be interested in. I will also say, if you are going to watch it, I know that you you won't necessarily agree with me, but other people will. The beginning is slow. It is. I will give it that. But get past that. And just know that you're in for a treat. Yeah, and by beginning, it's really like the first half of the movie. Yeah. It's very slow paced. It's literally almost in slow motion in some parts, but it will pay off. There's some great scenes. Yeah. That's long I'm going to leave it at that. We'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah, I love it. I can't wait. So we will be covering Mandy. If you watch the trailer and you're waiting for that scene to pop up, it's coming. Just wait for it. (laughs) That movie is bananas. 
Okay, well, you guys have been awesome. This movie has been super fun to talk about, which is no surprise. I had a feeling it would be. And of course, you guys can follow us on Instagram at Blood, Fear, and Beer Podcast. If you have questions for us, movie or beer suggestions, or you want to tell us what you thought about Sleepy Hollow or any of the other subjects or movies we've covered so far, we would absolutely love to hear from you. You can email us at bloodfearandbeer at gmail.com. And if you get the opportunity, please take just a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It will help other horror fans find us. It's been helping so far. So to those of you who have done it, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. And until next time, keep it spooky. Cheers.